Thank you, brothers, for your psalms, prayers, and singing. It's a pleasure to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. For our visitors, we are in the middle of a short series about deacons, looking at what the Bible has to say about them so that we might have our thoughts set correctly and not have any ideas that have been formed by the opinions of men. I fear in my flesh that you might think this a boring subject, but if you're wise, it's not boring at all. Because we shall, by the grace of God, look at ten character traits today for deacons that should provoke everyone here to measure their life by those ten character traits. Because these character traits are the princes in the kingdom of heaven. These character traits separate church members, princes, from the average. And I hope that each one of you will take each of these character traits and look at the phrase that the Holy Spirit has given us and measure yourself by it. How do I measure by this trait in the sight of God and in the sight of good men? Because these are the traits of princes in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may he humble us before these. and May he provoke us by them and convict us to fulfill them. This is our goal and our prayer. Of course, our main purpose is for us to have established in our minds what men should be chosen from our congregation to be deacons. But while we're doing that, the vast majority of you will not be chosen to be deacons. Those of you that are women, those of you that are children, will not be deacons. But yet you can measure yourself by these character traits. May the Lord bless us to exalt these ten items, and to love them, and to do them. I want to read just verse 3 from Acts chapter 6, as we have four qualifications here in this one verse. Acts chapter 6 and verse 3, the apostles told the very, very large church at Jerusalem, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Four qualifications in this one verse. They are men. They are of honest report. That means they have a reputation for integrity and honesty. They are full of the Holy Ghost, and they are full of wisdom. Four character traits right here. Ask yourself, am I a man? If you're a man, then we can go forward to our view of honest report. And here women can even join in. Am I a woman of honest report? You can measure yourself by these character traits while we learn them in order to select deacons. Is your reputation one for great honesty in all your transactions? What you say, you do. You don't exaggerate. You speak the truth. You speak the truth Always are you a person of an honest reputation. Are you full of the Holy Ghost? Do you have the fruit of the Holy Spirit proving that you have the Holy Ghost? You know, in the days of the apostles, there were gifts in the church. 
And you could try to measure a person by their gifts. But remember, Judas Iscariot had as many gifts as the Apostle Peter. John and Peter could in no wise figure out that Judas was the betrayer of the Lord Jesus Christ because he had as many gifts as they did. Gifts are not the, are not the proof, but fruit is. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. There are nine proofs that the Spirit of God is in a man. And we want to aspire to those. Are you a spiritually minded person? A spiritually minded person will speak of Jesus Christ. He'll be full of thanksgiving. He'll talk of heaven. He will not be enamored with this world. He will be putting the kingdom of God first in his life. That's a man full of the Holy Ghost and one of wisdom. As we looked at it last Sunday, would be a man that lives by the wisdom taught in the book of Proverbs and throughout the scriptures. He's a prudent man. He's full of knowledge. He's cautious. He's careful. He's discreet. He makes his judgments very carefully. He's known for being a person of good judgment. He's full of wisdom. Let's come now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Those are traits that we looked at last Lord's Day. We want to look at some new ones. And these are the marks of princes in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine. And those are three that we looked at last Lord's Day. To be grave is to be weighty and dignified, to be respected and very serious about life. I hope that you might remember that consideration of the grave will make you grave. That's why it's better to go to the house of mourning than it is to go to the house of feasting. Because the living will lay it to his heart that that is the end of all men. We are all going to die. We are not all going to a party. We're going to die. And so a grave man is one who approaches life seriously because we want serious deacons representing us and representing the Lord in our church. Likewise, it said, not double-tongued. That means speaking out of both sides of your mouth, not inconsistent, not a hypocrite. Saying one thing and then not doing it or saying one thing on one occasion and saying something else elsewhere. This is related to the honest report of Acts chapter 6. But we want deacons that speak with a single tongue because they have a single heart. If you can't trust a man's words, how are you going to trust him overseeing the business of a church? Not given to much wine. Deacons are to be temperate in their use of wine. Because wine can steal the heart of a man. Wine can be a mocker if it's abused. Wine can lead to drunkenness. And we're told, as we looked last week in Proverbs chapter 31, that it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink too much wine, lest their sense of judgment be taken away. And so a deacon is to be temperate, not given. When it says not given, that has nothing to do with not using it. It also says not given to filthy lucre, but we all use filthy lucre. We have to use filthy lucre. To be given to something is to be prone to it, vulnerable to it, disposed to it, addicted to it. It's to be greedy of it, as the next clause is going to show us. It's to be greedy of it, and a deacon should be temperate around the use of 
of much wine. So we come to the last clause, the last phrase of verse 8, where we start today. Don't let this be boring. The Word of God should never be boring. Every Word of God is pure. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every Word of God. And these are the words of the living God. These are men He esteems highly. Not greedy of filthy lucre. Filthy lucre is money. They are not greedy of money. They are not covetous or ambitious to be rich. It is the same as being given to filthy lucre. Here in verse 8, we have not greedy of filthy lucre. Over here in verse 3 of the same chapter where it's dealing with bishops, it says not given or not greedy of filthy lucre as well. And then in Titus chapter 1, it says not given to filthy lucre. So here, both bishops and deacons are not to be greedy of it. But in Titus chapter 1, they're not to be given to it. So we understand by comparing spiritual things with spiritual, that to be given to it is to be greedy of it. It's important to it and you're pursuing it. It's important to you and you're pursuing it. But a man, a righteous man, is not in the pursuit of riches. He is not greedy of filthy lucre. Look at Exodus 18.21 with me. Exodus 18.21. This is the time when Moses' father-in-law came and visited him in the camp of Israel in the wilderness. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, saw that Moses was, was, uh, had people lined up all day long seeking his counsel and his advice. And Jethro said, you're going to wear out unless you get some men to help you. Doesn't that sound like deacons? That's what was going to happen to the apostles if they didn't get someone to help them in Acts chapter 6. Because caring for the widows in that church was more than they could do. And preach the word of God and give themselves to prayer. But in Exodus 18.21, Jethro, by the inspiration of God, has wisdom for Moses. And he tells Moses that he is to select some men out of the nation that can help him. Verse 21. Moreover... Thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. These are leaders of men right here. This is a description of leaders of men. They are able men. They fear God. They are men of truth. And what's that fourth character trait? They hate covetousness. They are not greedy. They do not a filthy lucre. They are not ambitious to be rich. Their desire is not to be rich and famous. They hate covetousness. Because if a man is the least disposed to covetousness, he can be bought. The Bible warns throughout of men being bought. Since deacons will be administering church funds, spending, receiving, accounting for, if they are prone to covetousness, there is a financial risk the church takes. But if we choose men that hate covetousness, it's not just that they're not covetous, they hate covetousness. They know that money is to provide things necessary for life, a little bit to be saved on for the future, and the rest to be given away. They understand that about money. 
The love of money is one of the most corrupting things of all. But let's look at the fact that the Lord knew that men could be prone to bribes or diverting funds. Look at Exodus 23. Exodus chapter 23. This is throughout the Bible. Exodus 23 and verse 8. Thou shalt take no gift. For the gift blindeth the wise and perverteth the words of the righteous. Anyone in a position of authority or any judge was not to take any gifts. No gifts. Because if you take a gift, it corrupts your decision. Well, this person gave me this. I'll go a little easy on them. See, the Lord knows that. Oh, the Lord knows our hearts. That's why we need men in positions of authority that hate covetousness. There's no amount of money you could offer them to alter the truth. They are going to give a righteous judgment no matter what. Look at another one. Deuteronomy 16, 19. We could chase these for quite a while, but let's just look at a few. Deuteronomy 16 and 19. It says in verse 18, judges and officers. So we know that we're speaking of those in authority. We come to verse 19. Thou shalt not rest judgment. Deuteronomy 16, 19. Thou shalt not rest judgment. Thou shalt not respect persons. Neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. So we want men that hate covetousness. They're not greedy of filthy lucre. So as you're looking for deacons, you want to make sure you're looking for a man that doesn't care about money. He works hard. He spends cautiously. He saves consistently. He avoids debt. He is not a risk taker. He is a scheme rejecter. He lives conservatively. He's a good record keeper. And he gives generously. The easiest way to know that a man is not greedy of filthy lucre is he loves to give it away. A man that's tight, you got to look out for him. What's he tight for? He must be greedy or covetous. Because a man that properly understands the place of money loves to throw it away. There is that scattereth. But it tendeth toward increase. There is that withholdeth more than his meat. But it tendeth toward poverty. And I am not asking anyone to sow a seed today. We are talking about character every day of your lives. We're talking about daily character and how you handle money. We want to look at a man in his financial aspects. He's not greedy of filthy lucre. Now let me go through that list of traits again. Because how do you tell whether a man's greedy of filthy lucre? It's how he handles money. He's a careful spender. He's not lusting after things, so he's just constantly chasing things and throwing money after them. He's a careful spender. He's a prompt payer. He's not trying to hold back because he doesn't like paying others from whom he has services. He's a prompt payer. He's a consistent saver. He's a man who saves. A man who saves is showing the discipline that we want in a man administering our money. He's a good record keeper because he cares about what money the Lord's given him, how he uses it, where it goes. He's a strong debt avoider because he knows that debt makes you the tail and someone else the body of the dog. 
He knows that the borrower is servant to the lender and he doesn't like to be a servant to very many. He's a scheme rejecter. He's not prone to listening to get-rich-quick ideas because he's not all that ambitious that he would overthrow his sense of judgment to listen to some airbrained scheme. He's not a risk-taker. He avoids risk because he doesn't want to lose what God's given him. He lives conservatively, and he gives generously. You look at those things, that's a man that handles his money well. He's not greedy of filthy lucre. Come back to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Money and the love of money is one of the great sources of evil in the world. 1 Timothy chapter 6. In Proverbs eleven sixteen, it says that a gracious woman retaineth honor. For a woman to be always esteemed, she needs to be gracious. A gracious woman retaineth honor. If you show me a woman that everyone loves, I'll show you a woman that's gracious. If a woman asks me or a girl asks me, what can I do that everyone would love me? If they were to ask such a question. And it's okay to ask such a question. There's an answer in the Bible. What can I do so that everyone would respect me and esteem me and honor me? Be gracious. Look up the word gracious. Trace it through the scriptures and be gracious. A gracious woman retaineth honor. But what what are the next five words in that short proverb? A strong man retaineth riches. He manages his money well. He's not losing it by chasing pipe dreams. He's not losing it by going into debt to get things that he doesn't have a right for yet. A strong man retaineth riches. The Bible says that. A strong man works hard to get it, is self-disciplined with strength to save it, and is very critical and pessimistic about get-rich-quick schemes so he doesn't lose it. He's not a surety for everyone. A strong man retains riches. The Bible teaches us all this, and we could, we could spend a series. It's called Bible Economics. I believe it was 11 sermons long, preached in 1986. You're welcome to it. It goes through what the Bible has to say about the handling of money in detail. But look at 1 Timothy 6. You know verse 10, because we've been taught it many times, the love of money is the root of all evil. Notice it doesn't say money is the root of all evil, it's the love of it. That's why they can't be greedy of filthy lucre. He may have some filthy lucre. In fact, he could even be a rich man in the church. But he's not greedy of it. It doesn't matter that much to him. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's verse 10. We can back up to verse 9. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. It doesn't say those that are rich fall into temptation and a snare. It says they that will be rich. It's the American way to want to be rich. It's the American way to love money. But the Christian way is not to do either. It's to work hard and trust the Lord to bless your efforts. If He makes you rich, you bless the God of heaven, you enjoy it, And what does verses 17 through 19 of this chapter say? You are ready to give it away. Charge the rich. Not that they have to become poor, but that they have a mental attitude toward their money that they're willing to give it away. Verses 17 through 19. 
Money. He's not greedy of filthy lucre. We can come back to verse 6. This is a godly man that doesn't care about money. He recognizes and he lives by this rule. 1 Timothy 6.6 But godliness with contentment is great gain. That is gain. The man who's worried about his promotions and his increases too much. Now we work to advance and do the best we can. However, this is the rule we live by. That godliness with contentment is great gain. It is better than any other measure for a man. To live a godly life and to be content with those things God has given you. That's great gain. And you know what? It doesn't matter how much you have today. You can be. It can be true of you that you are experiencing great gain. No matter what you have today. Because you're living a godly life. And because you're content with what you have. That is great gain. It's not more stuff. It's more godliness. It's not more stuff. It's more contentment. Praise the Lord. It's easy to be a winner in his sight, isn't it? Godliness with contentment. You happy with your mode of transportation? Does it get you from A to B? Contentment. Enjoy it. Thank the Lord for it. It may be 11 years old. It may be 21 years old. Enjoy it. Godliness with contentment. Wise men keep money in its proper place. What's the wise man say in Proverbs chapter 30? How much does he want? Make me neither rich nor poor. Give me food convenient for me. Give me enough so that I won't get proud. I mean, give me a little, give me, don't give me too much that I would be proud and give me enough that I won't steal. Let me walk the path of righteousness between the two ditches. That's a great prayer. And a man who is not greedy of filthy lucre is going to talk and act that way about money. Much more could be said. But we need to go on. Let's look at verse, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 9. 1 Timothy 3, 9. You know what the Bible says? If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. There's the key. There's the key. Your heart is not wrapped up in how much you have. You are not measuring your life by your income. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. The wise man said, for riches have a way of growing wings. So if you set your heart on them and they fly away, where will you be? You will be a heartless victim of your own greed. Lord, save us. 1 Timothy 3.9 Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Now this is an interesting verse. This is character trait number two that we want to cover today. And this is something we all want to do. What is the mystery of the faith? The faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The mystery are those things the world doesn't know, but we know because God's revealed them to us by His Spirit. In fact, we can't get out of this chapter before the Holy Spirit gives us one of the most glorious descriptions of the mystery of the faith. It's in verse 16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. This is what deacons love. This is what deacons hold steadfast to. This is what deacons have no doubts about. This is what deacons defend. This is what deacons live by. 
this mystery of the faith. Look at this description. You know I, I love this verse. 1 Timothy 3.16 Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He was justified in the Spirit. The Spirit was poured out upon Him without measure so that His miracles and wonders and His resurrection proved that He was the Son of God. He was seen of angels. They ministered, worshipped Him, and helped Him throughout His life. He was preached unto the Gentiles by the apostles. He was believed on in the world, and He was received up into glory. Jesus sits at God's right hand. These six things are not taught in history books in secular schools. There's nothing about these six things in today's newspaper in any city. But without controversy, these six things are great in their importance. Any one of those is a thrilling basis for a sermon or a study in the Word of God. The angels? He was seen of angels. Do you know what he told Nathaniel? Nathaniel said to him, or no, Nathaniel recognized that Jesus was the Son of God, and Jesus said to Nathaniel, Are you impressed because I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree out of my sight? He said, Nathaniel, you're going to see a whole lot more than that. You're going to see the angels of heaven descending and ascending on the Son of Man. The angels were with him all the time. God had said in Hebrews chapter 1, let all the angels of God worship him. He was comforted and strengthened with angels in the wilderness. He was comforted and strengthened with angels in the garden of Gethsemane. There were angels throughout his life. And they came and sat on the stone that was rolled away by the great earthquake when he rose from the dead. It's a wonderful... Anyway, deacons love that kind of stuff. That's the point. I'm going to get off and be preaching on 1 Timothy 3.16. I love 1 Timothy 3.16. Is is there any controversy in your mind? What have you read this past week? Can any of it compete with 1 Timothy 3.16? There is nothing you can watch on TV. That includes this afternoon and this evening. I I think there's something on tonight. This is more important. Does this light your fire? And I mean that in a spiritual sense. Without controversy, great is this mystery. We come back to verse 9. Holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. They they don't vary. They don't come up with heretical ideas. They are consistent defenders and lovers of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. And they live up to it. They live in a pure conscience, loving the truth of the gospel. This is an unusual qualification. We don't have... A similar matchup in the qualifications for the bishops. Although it's assumed about them that they're going to hold fast the faithful word as they have been taught. That they may be able to shut the mouths of the gainsayers. But here we have the deacons who are not called to preach. They're called to serve tables in Acts 6. But yet they love the mystery of the gospel. So a deacon is not a carnal church member who's a good businessman. A deacon is a man full of the Holy Ghost, and he loves the truth of the gospel. And he holds it fast. He won't let anyone move him on it. Those six items down there, and there's more of them, of course, in the New Testament. The six items listed in verse 16, he loves them and he lives by them. Deacons hold fast the truth of the gospel. They don't waver. They hold it with an honest conscience, meaning they are fully committed to it without any hypocrisy. They have a pure conscience, 
They are 100% sold out to the revelation that God's given us in His Scriptures about Jesus Christ. Not only do they have an intellectual understanding of it, but they also have a heart that loves it, and they have lives that are ordered according to it. They love the truth. They don't vary in their commitment to it. The reason should be obvious why we want deacons like that, because they're going to have an elevated position in the church, and they should be examples of lovers of the gospel. Verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. You know, the more you study this, being a deacon is a great honor. A great honor. No wonder it says down here in verse 13, For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree. Now, this isn't one of those diploma mills where you buy your degree, okay? When it says you can purchase your degree, there are diploma mills on the Internet where you can go and if you'll give them your credit card number, they'll send you a college degree. This is not meaning that when it says purchase a good degree. It means you get it into your possession. You take possession of it. You obtain this good degree. And how do you do it? By using the office of a deacon well. You elevate yourself in honor in the kingdom of Jesus Christ among his people and in the eyes of our Savior himself. No wonder it says that. No wonder it says and with great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. By being a leader in the church, by having an elevated position and loving the gospel, it gives them greater boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus, because they're more involved in it. Right. If we've been too unkind to deacons in the past, Lord, forgive us. Because we want to line up with Scripture. Verse 10. And these also, and let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Two qualifications here. One, they need to be proved first. And second, they need to be found blameless in that proving. And let these also... We have two offices, bishop, verses 1 through 7, deacon, verses 8 through 13. Both of them need to be proven in whatever that word means in this verse. Let these also, also means there's two things being compared. Let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. We learn here that there is definitely an office, an office of a deacon that a man is put into and he he becomes an official or he becomes an officer in the church and serves the church in that office. Let these also first be proved. What does it mean? There needs to be clear evidence. What is proof? Evidence. How do we get proof? We test, we try, we experiment, we see real examples. It does not mean that we make a person a deacon for a year. And then if they don't pass, they were on probation and they're, they're, the office is taken away. It means that the evidence is there and it's clear. We are not making someone a deacon because it's a popularity contest. We're not making someone a deacon because they're a new member and we want them to stay with us. Churches will make men deacons for all sorts of reasons. It's because we have seen the character necessary to be a deacon already. This does not mean that it's sitting down with a committee and being grilled. That isn't. Words are cheap. 
It's conduct over time that proves that a man is ready to be a deacon. Let these also first be proved. How would you prove a bishop? One of the most important things a bishop has to have in order to be proved is he has to speak. You have to put him up in front of people and let him preach the word of God to see if he is apt to teach. There isn't something as specific with a deacon as apt to teach, and the other qualifications of a bishop are not quite so specific either as apt to teach, which requires you putting him in a teaching position or a teaching opportunity. But you look at a man through his unofficial assignments in the church, and you look at a man how he conducts his whole life, do you have the proof and the evidence that he deserves to be a deacon? Let these also first be proved. Let it be based on real evidence. Let it be based on real proof. Let them be proved. Don't make a hasty decision. Here's what the, the bishop's qualification says. Not a novice. What does that mean? Not a new convert. Because if he's put in the ministry as a bishop and he's a new convert, there's a high risk of him being puffed up in pride at the elevated role of being a bishop. It doesn't say novice here under deacon, but it says, let these also first be proved. There needs to be clear evidence. Through unofficial assignments the church has given them. Through their regular care conduct of their life. They have shown the proof that they're ready for the office. There has to be more than a hypothetical, sentimental, or theoretical idea that a person could be a good deacon. Are you with me? It can't just be... I think, I think brother so-and-so might do a good job. No. Either he has done a good job and the evidence is already there. He's already proved himself that he is of these character traits or he isn't. Let these also first be proved. We prove something by doing it. We prove something by trying it or inspecting it beforehand. So there's much more to it than mere hope that it will work. We test it. And we can test men by watching how they conduct themselves. We're, we've seen a few traits already. Are they grave? How do you prove grave? Do you ask somebody in a meeting, are you grave? Or do you know a person over time that they've shown themselves to be grave? That's let these also first be proved. We do not make a choice based on personal affection, personal friendship, or any other light reason. It's based on evidence. That is what these words mean. We don't take the whole church and rotate through all the men one year at a time or six months at a time, making them an unofficial deacon. The evidence is already there for those that qualify. Let these also first be proved. Look for men who have already established themselves as having the qualifications that the passage lists. This qualification precludes hasty appointing of unproven men. Because we can only accept those who have already been proved. We have seen it in their lives. We've witnessed it. We know that these traits are true about them. No other criterion should direct a church but the actual evidence of the listed qualifications. Let these also first be proved. Before we ever put a man in the office of a deacon, he has already shown what these qualifications are. He's already shown that they're in his life. That's what the first half of verse 10 means. That's the sense of it. There should be clear evidence. Remember, the apostles in Acts 
6 said, Look ye out among you seven men of honest report. See, the apostles didn't say, Hey, we have a problem and we're willing to wait two years while you figure out who would be good deacons. They said, We have a problem and we want to get rid of the problem right now. Look ye out among you seven men of honest report. That means they've already been proved. How have they been proved? They have a reputation. Everybody knows they're very honest. Are you with me? Let these also first be proved. There should be an existing character about a man, and there should be existing conduct that it's rather easy to say, yeah, he's grave. He's not greedy of filthy lucre. I've never seen anything like that in him. He's not double-tongued. When he says something, he does it. That, that's a man that's been proved. It's not someone, well, let's, you know, Brother Billy, his daddy was a deacon, his grandpa was a deacon, let's make Brother Billy a deacon. All of that is blown out when the Holy Spirit says, let these also first be proved. There better be clear evidence of the character and the conduct that God wants in the office before they're put in the office. We don't put them in the office, I think, with a little bit of help and encouragement from the other deacons, Brother Billy might turn out to be a good deacon. No, the, pat, the verse here is telling us they've already shown the character and they've already shown the conduct that would be fitting for a deacon. In most churches, there are men who have proven character and conduct in related areas that fit the office of deacon. This verse is important because it separates between unofficial work and official work. We have men in this church that are doing unofficial work, and you should know whether they do a good job or not. And the fact that they've already had an unofficial assignment from the church and they've done well says very much for their character and conduct. The proving is a watching and measuring of how a man performs in related assignments. The proving is a choosing of men who have already established their character and conduct as fitting these qualifications. That's what it means. We don't sit around and wait for years putting men through a trial. Every man is already on trial. Every week of our lives. We've been, we're on trial all the time. We should be thinking about how we speak and how we live, how we handle money, how we treat our families every day, every week. A man who's been a member for five or ten years, we know what he's like. Does he have any glaring faults in his life or not? Has he proved himself already to us? Let these also first be proved. Don't let... There are men who have confessed to me that they have been offered the position of deacon before they became church member in other churches. That is ridiculous. And even if, even if that is too extreme for you to even grasp, anything even toward that is wrong. It's men that have been proved. Let these also first be proved. Established character and conduct. Look at what it says, 1 Timothy 3.10, and let these also first be proved. Real evidence established for them. Then let them use the office of a deacon. That's how they get in, because they've already proven that they can do the job by the way they have fulfilled all the qualifications in their private life, church life, and unofficial tasks. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. During this proving time, when you're watching a man, you want to see, is he blameless? Is there anything that he can be blamed for? If there is, he can't be a deacon. 
What can he be blamed for right now? Does he fulfill all these qualifications or does he not? Now, when we read the word blameless, you know, the, de- the dictionary definition of the word is to be exempt from blame. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Blameless means there's nothing to blame a man for. Now, when we look at the words, there's nothing to blame a man for, and we think of blameless for any man, we know that it can't apply to every sin, or nobody would be blameless. That's plain enough. So from that standpoint, it's got to have some sort of limitation. One of the limitations is the present tense. How how blameful was the Apostle Paul before he was converted? Were there a few things to blame him for? Were there church members that had relatives in the cemetery because of Paul? When Paul tried to join the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter 9, or even to gain entrance to it, did they want him there? No. Why? Because he was to be blamed for a few things. How did he get himself blameless? A man named Barnabas came down from the church at Antioch to Jerusalem. This is Acts 9, 26 and following. And gave them a testimony. You can trust this man. The Lord's met him. He's a changed man. And you know what it says? He was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. Based on a man's testimony that they trusted. Because Barnabas was from Jerusalem. His sister Mary... The mother of John Mark, we'll get to him in a second, we're all there in Jerusalem. So there was, a, there was a testimony of a man they trusted that said, this man's been converted. And when a man's converted, his past faults are blotted out. Amen. If he's full of zeal right. and shows true godly repentance. Blameless. You know, you read that word and you think, well, is there a perfect man in our church that could be a deacon? Be very careful. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and this is exciting. Every man and every woman gets to start over by the grace of God and the redemption that is in Christ Jesus daily. Now, that doesn't mean you can prove your reputation reestablished daily, but you can certainly get on the road toward it. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and see what kind of church members there were in the church at Corinth. Blameless means that there is nothing to blame a man for in the present. Being found blameless. You watch him and he's blameless. There's nothing, we can't say that he is not a grave man because he's shown us he's grave. Does that mean he's never cracked a joke foolishly? If he did crack a joke foolishly, what did he do about it? He repented of it and corrected it. Would we still count him blameless in that area of being grave? Yes. If it was proper repentance, because what does proper repentance do? I'll show you in a second. It is thorough in its clearing of a man. The Lord Jesus Christ came to die on the cross. And if we forget the Lord Jesus Christ dying on a cross, we forget our whole religion. And when he died on the cross, he died to put away all our sins. And he blots them out. Why was Paul saved the way he was? Why did God let the apostle Paul persecute Christians for so long and kick against the pricks Until he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Do you know there's a reason? For an example. To be a pattern for them that would believe on Jesus Christ to life everlasting after that. That sinful, wicked Christian killer was converted by the Lord Jesus Christ and changed totally to give us an example of how much God can overlook and use a man. And he put him into the ministry. How long did it take for Paul? Three days. 
You say, that's pretty sincere repentance. Oh, yes, it was. When he got to Damascus, where did he go? To the house of one Ananias. And what was he doing while he was there for three days? Praying. And he wasn't in the house of Ananias. Ananias went and found him. But the Lord told Ananias, you're going to identify Paul because he is praying. As soon as he had his sight given back to him by Ananias, and as soon as Ananias fed him a meal, what did Paul do? He hit the synagogue. He went to the synagogue. He had letters from the high priest in Jerusalem that said, go to Damascus, and any Christians you can find, you can bring them back here. We'll throw them in prison, try them, and kill them. He has his letters in his pocket, and he gets up, he gets strength, and he goes to the synagogue and preaches Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Paul. And why did God do that? First Timothy 1 says it's to be an example for everyone that believes on Jesus Christ after him. First Corinthians 6, I wanted to show you. Look at this. The church at Corinth. You know, if there was a church that would agree with us in saying we're nothing but a bunch of ugly sinners saved by grace, it'd be the church at Corinth. They lived in a city with some traits common to American cities. Verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall enter, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Look at those, that list of sins. Fornication, idolatry, adultery, effeminacy, sodomy, stealing, covetousness, drunkenness, reviling, and extortion. What a list of crimes. They cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. How much was the Apostle Paul still blaming those people for that were guilty of those sins? Could you commune with a born-again and converted sodomite? Could you? If he had been proved that he was grave and not double-tongued and not given to much wine and not greedy of filthy lucre, could you make him a deacon? Would it be hard? It shouldn't be. Look at the verse. Such were some of you. Such were some of you, but ye are washed, ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's crimes were a little different than these. They were, I was a blasphemer, I was injurious, I hailed men and women and put them into prison. King Agrippa, I verily thought within myself, I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. And yet the Lord put him into the ministry right off the bat. Because he had been forgiven and he had proven himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he proved himself immediately to all those that were at Damascus where Barnabas was. So when we read, let these also first be proved in 1 Timothy. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. During this period of time that we get to watch a man. And he's showing that he's grave. And he's showing that he's not given to filthy lucre. Or he's not greedy of filthy lucre. He's not given to much wine. We make a judgment. There's, no, there's nothing outstanding against that man. There's no fault that can be laid to his charge. There is no censure that we can give against him. He needs no reproof because his life is clean. 
He has not broken any of these qualifications. When he did, he repented of it. And his zeal and his repentance shows that that was a temporary issue in his life. So he's blameless. Look at this. This is why, this is why we have to make this choice. This is why we want to make this choice. And the word blameless applies as much to every church member as it does to those in the ministry. Philippians chapter 2 verses 14 through 16 tells every church member that they need to be harmless and blameless, the sons of God, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Second Peter chapter 3 says we're supposed to live blameless lives in verse 14 in light of the Lord's coming. Every church member. Well, how can we be blameless? We can confess our sins and start over through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ Amen. with zeal that clears us. Right. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We let the Holy Spirit define repentance for us and we let the Holy Spirit tell us the effect of repentance. And they both are powerful. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. This is godly sorrow that is real repentance that saves men. What carefulness it wrought in you. What clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. And there is an exclamation point put there by the Holy Spirit because this is all intense. These are intense adjectives. This is repentance. It's not saying, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. This is true repentance. And what is, what's the effect of it? In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. This is what the Apostle Paul says about true godly sorrow and repentance. How much clearing? You have altogether cleared yourself in this matter. How? By those seven character traits of real repentance. What carefulness. Um, A man who has not been grave and knows he, he failed and was not grave like he should be, will be careful about using his tongue. And so he will show to men by his carefulness that he does care about that and he is going to be a grave man. Jesus forgave him for his moment of indiscretion and he goes forward and he proves that he's a grave man by his carefulness, his clearing of himself. He goes and apologizes to anyone who heard him do that. He's indignant about having done it. He has fear of ever doing it again, so he stays away from anything that would lead him to it. He has vehement desire, zeal, and revenge against that sin. He's blameless. Otherwise, let's just give up on this subject because none of you qualify. It gets better. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Every single church member not just the deacons, should be blameless. The deacons just need to be blameless in the things listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Do you you understand that? Or or the list has no purpose. The blamelessness is there because they're already supposed to be blameless in everything else. Are are you with? Are we all on that? You know, when it comes to gravity, a dignified, weighty seriousness, a reverent seriousness about life, the deacon is to have that. Church members are not pushed to be as grave as a 
official in the church is. But the blamelessness is, he has cleared himself in matters of gravity. He is a grave man. Yes, I know, I heard him crack a joke a year ago, but as soon as he did it, the look on his face was so horrible and he repented of it right then, and the zeal he's shown since then. Are you going to hold him responsible for that? Listen, if you're going to hold him responsible for that, what's he going to hold you responsible for? You going to keep blaming him for that? Or are you going to forgive it like the Lord Jesus Christ did? Amen. No existing faults, errors, or sins to blame a man for. Right. That's blameless. We've measured him by these criteria for a period of time. He's failed a couple times, but we, he, we have shown by his zealous repentance that that is not his ordinary character and he hates that sin. We have nothing to charge him with. He's blameless. That's how we pick a deacon in verse 10. Let these also first be proved. But let's go back. I want to show you some examples. I just want to remind you about blamelessness so that you can properly understand the word. Peter. Peter was to be blamed twice in his life for the same sin. Fear of man. Twice he failed. Twice the Lord forgave him. Twice he was restored to blamelessness Immediately. Because his overall life was one of courage. He just blew it a couple of times. You know, he denied the Lord Jesus Christ when what kind of a ferocious, intimidating being came and threatened him? A little maid. Now, is that the kind of a man that you want leading the apostles? A little maid can come and catch him in a fire and say, listen, I think you were with him. You know, this Jesus of Nazareth being... Scourged over here, I think you were with him. Whoa, I never knew the man. And it says with oaths and cursing he denied him because he was afraid. Even though just 12 hours earlier he had told the Lord Jesus Christ, I will go with you to prison and I'll even go to death for you. Jesus had said Satan has desired to sift you. You know, sometimes the Lord Jesus Christ turns men over to Satan for a short period of time for some sifting to make them better. Did he, bring, did he bring Peter down off his high horse? Yep. Yes. When Peter had done it three times at that fire, what happened in the third time? He heard, he heard something. He heard the cock crow. And what did he see? The Lord Jesus turned and looked at him. And he went out and wept bitterly. There was his repentance. When the Lord Jesus Christ got a hold of him a few days later, have you read it? In John chapter 21. Simon, son of Jonah, lovest thou me more than these? How many times did he ask him that? Three. three. Why? Because he denied him three times. What did he say at the end of it? Feed my sheep. Amen. I'm leaving my flock of sheep and I'm putting you in charge of them. Feed my sheep. He had already told Peter that before he fell. He told him that in Luke 22 when he said, Satan hath desired to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Amen. What is that conversion? Real repentance. Real repentance. But here's Peter's second failure. Second time he could be blamed. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. This is after the council at Jerusalem, brethren. Remember, we just preached through this epistle not too long ago. This is after the council of Jerusalem when... Peter spoke, Paul and Barnabas spoke, and James gave the summary lesson that the Gentiles were not to be forced to act like Jews. And then Peter travels from Jerusalem up to Antioch 
of Syria, which was Paul's home church. Verse 11, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from, for before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Peter was to be blamed. If we're going to study Scripture and let the Holy Spirit compare spiritual things with spiritual, and we've got the word blameless in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and here we've got the word blamed, does Galatians 2.11 fit 1 Timothy 3.10? Yes, it does. Peter was to be blamed. Look at the faults he had. He was to be blamed and he was blamed publicly. Do you know what this epistle of Galatians means? It means that the churches of Galatia all knew about Peter's failure at Antioch. Verse 12, verse 12 tells us what the problem was. He was afraid. He feared the Jews that had come up from Jerusalem. Verse 13, it's called dissimulation, which is another word for hypocrisy. Verse 14 tells us that they were not walking upright according to the truth of the gospel. Now, what happened? Peter wrote two epistles, and Peter is still writing at the end of his life when he says, I am now ready to be offered. I'm ready to put off this my tabernacle. How did he restore himself? Because he repented, obviously. He obviously repented. Here's a, here he was blamed. He repented. Paul, you're right. Jews, you, we have no obligation to put these Gentiles under our commandments. They do not have any obligation to keep the law of Moses. And so he was restored to blamelessness and he continued right on. His ministry wrote two epistles and was one of the great apostles of the New Testament church. He was a foundation of that church. There's another man I don't want you to forget. I hope you all know about him because I'm not going to turn you to the verses. I hope you know about him. John Mark. When Paul went on his first evangelistic trip, he took with him Barnabas and John Mark. John Mark was Barnabas' nephew because Barnabas had a sister named Mary in Jerusalem. They crossed the Mediterranean Sea, and we're not told what happened, but John must have got homesick. Because in Acts 13, 13, it tells us he left and went back to Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas had to go on themselves. In Acts chapter 15, the last few verses, Paul is ready to go on his second trip. And Barnabas says, let's take John Mark with us again. Remember, he's his nephew. A little nepotism. Um, and what, is, what does Paul say? No way. I, no way am I taking that guy. He was AWOL last time, and there was a sharp dissension between Paul and Barnabas. So that Barnabas took Mark and went one way, and Paul took Silas and went another way. Are you, are you all familiar with this? Amen. What do we read about John? Can you, can you say the Gospels to me? Say them in order. Matthew, oh, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Later in Paul's life, 2 Timothy 4.11 and in other places, Colossians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said, bring Mark, bring Mark because he's profitable for me in the ministry. Now, how blameless was Mark? 
He was blameless by then because he had repented and he was restored to ministering with the Apostle Paul. You got to look up John Mark. Anyway, back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Oh, brethren, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is this plain. That a woman in a city who was a great sinner could come into a supper where Jesus was sitting at a table with a bunch of self-righteous Pharisees. And who did Jesus defend and love the most? That woman that was a great sinner. And what did he say to her? Did he put her through penance? Catholic penance? Did he put her through two years of trial? Or did he say, thy sins be forgiven thee? Go and sin no more. And then you can clear yourself. Don't we clear ourselves all the time with one another and with the Lord? We, we all sin. And so we, we take those sins, we confess them to God, and then we show that righteous repentance, that godly sorrow described in 2 Corinthians 7, that altogether clears us from such a matter, and we go forward. So when we're looking at a deacon, 1 Timothy chapter 3, let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. We look at their life. Is there anything outstanding right now that we can fault them for? Do they have, in the area of gravity, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, honest reputation, do they have something outstanding against them? Or are they blameless? And they're blameless because all the little things don't count. The things outside the qualifications for a deacon don't really count. And the big ones if they're covered with true godly sorrow and repentance, they don't count. So you're blameless. Otherwise, we have, if we don't make some careful distinctions like that, and we've done it with the Word of God, we found out what kind of saints they were at Corinth in their past. We found out that Peter was blamed, but then he wasn't blamed. We found out that John Mark was blamed, then he wasn't blamed. And we saw that real godly sorrow altogether clears a man in that matter. Right. But that is not any sorrow. That is godly sorrow and true repentance. Right. You know, some make a distinction about sins before or after initial conversion or after ordination. But Peter is our great example. Right. When did his two sins occur? After initial conversion or before? After. After or before his ordination? After. It's in the Word of God. We stick with Scripture to help us understand that difficult word in 1 Timothy 3.8 because as we look at it, we know that none of us are really blameless. When you go and read Luke chapter 1, verse 6, and it says, Zacharias and Elizabeth were blameless in the law. What does that mean to you? It means they lived a holy life. Whatever they did wrong, they corrected. And they offered sacrifices for their sins according to the law so that they were blameless. Let me make it even more practical. Let's say Zacchaeus was in our church. Zacchaeus was a publican and a thief. He was up in the sycamore tree because he was short. Would we want Zacchaeus to be a deacon? Oh, this is, this is sweet. I just want you to think about it. If Zacchaeus was one of our church members, could he be a deacon? When he popped out of the sycamore tree after, and Jesus said, listen, I'm going to your house. What did the whole crowd do? Was he of honest report? No, no. Not quite. But how quickly did he get of honest report? Do you know what he said? Lord, if I have wronged any man 
fourfold. I will take half of my goods and give them to the poor just in case somebody doesn't come forward for what I've taken. You know what Jesus said? Today, salvation has come to this house. Amen. Does that mean we would ordain Zacchaeus the next day? No. But that is the way to start godly sorrow and repentance, isn't it? Amen. What a confession and what a commitment. And if he lived up to that, how long would you need? If he had lived up to that for a couple of years and Zacchaeus was in this church and he was one of the most generous, giving, caring, honest men that we had, how would you hold him back from the office of a deacon? Would you say he's to blame because back then he had a fault that he had covered with his repentance? I love Zacchaeus. I love the Lord's answer to Zacchaeus. Today, salvation has come to this house. You know what that was saying? Godly sorrow that worketh repentance unto salvation. Not to be repented of. That was real godly sorrow and real repentance that restored the blamelessness of, that, that God Zacchaeus, blamelessness. He could have been a deacon. He could have been easy, he could easily have been a deacon. As much as Paul could have been an apostle, as much as Peter was an apostle, as much as John Mark was profitable for Paul in the ministry. Summarily, let's just sum up that tenth verse. Let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. We understand that blameless means a man is not presently guilty of any character or conduct matters that would violate the office of a deacon. We understand that from verse 10. And we understand the word proving there to mean that we have clear evidence that he has the character and conduct that fits the office. It's not just hypothetical. It's not sentimental. It's not personal. It's not a popularity poll. It's who's got the character and conduct already established for us to see clearly. Let them have the office of a deacon because there's nothing that we can find of blame in their lives that in the list of the qualifications we need to be a deacon. I hope I've made the word of God clear enough. Thank you for your kind attention. Take your burgundy hymnals and let's turn to number 263.